All right, hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible on it this morning, we have people who have Bibles here. They get a Bible into your hands. If you forgot your Bible, and for sure, if you don't own a Bible, you do now. You can grab one of these and take it as our gift to you. Go to <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. If you're not familiar with that is, if you just bust your Bible open in the middle, usually hit Psalms, head right a little bit. We go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Great book for married people. If you're single, just stick in Proverbs. Don't go Song of Solomon, right? Or read Judges. I don't know. And then right after that, you hit Isaiah, okay? All right, stay in your notes, Kai. Let's do this. All right, get to Isaiah chapter 6. You know, it was quite a while ago that um, my wife Libby and I, we were uh, given the, the DVD box set of Band of Brothers, right? That, that mini-series, it was, it was uh, 10 shows in it. And so, I mean, we, this is pre-Netflix, so if you wanted to binge-watch something, you had to physically have the DVDs with you, okay? And so we binge-watched that Band of Brothers. It was this, this awesome mini-series of these tracking the lives of these guys who um, were in the 101st uh, um, Airborne Division in World War II, and it tracked them from boot camp all the way through to these missions they were on in World War II. It was phenomenal, but every episode had these interviews with the real soldiers who were being portrayed in the show, right? And they're asking these questions about, you know, what was going on at this time. And, and there was this theme that kind of went throughout the whole show, this, this theme of, of how, how people can have this tremendous ability to live out these radical lives, these missions they were on. And they had this because they were captivated by something so great. In fact, there's one interview they're having with one of the soldiers, and they're like, hey, what was it like? I mean, you jumped into the army as just a teenager. He goes, yeah, in my small town, once we heard what was happening, we, we saw it as a battle between good and evil. He goes, every young man in my town is like, how do I sign up? In fact, if you were physically unable to enter into the military, he said, it was devastating for those people. It's so true that we have this tremendous capacity to live a radically different life when, when what? When we're provoked by something so great. I think for every single one of us, there's this desire in us where we're longing for that kind of awe, that kind of, that kind of wonder, that kind of significance, that kind of greatness to draw our hearts out. We have this desire in our lives to, to, to be pointed towards, to spend our lives on something that's bigger than ourselves. But for some reason, there can be this gap, this gap in what we say, this is what I want, this is what I believe in, and how our lives actually look. So often it's so hard to figure, man, how do I close that gap? In fact, it was the Puritan Thomas Chalmers. He, he gave us an answer to that question of how do you close this gap? And, and he said it this way. He said, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by mere force of mental determination. He says, reason and willpower are not enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. It can be replaced, he says. And the only way to dispossess, to replace our heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He's saying when you experience something so great, it will change you. When you experience something greater than the, the small things that we normally say, this is what my life is built on, this is what I'm pouring myself out for, and then you experience something so much greater than what you thought was great, it changes you. So we need to be provoked by something great. In fact, my, my, my hope every Sunday is not to convince you, not to convict you, not to condemn you, not, not to do any of these things to try to hope that we, we see action or change in our lives. My, my hope every Sunday is this. My hope is that, that to do the best I can with my limited ability, with our limited time, 
to help us catch a glimpse of the majesty and the beauty and the glory and the holiness and the awesomeness of our God. So that whatever object, whatever that that thing is, whatever holds our attention, whatever holds our affection could be expelled by the greatness of this God who we see. So whatever or however you're living today, wherever you you see your affections are being being taken, whatever that is, that that it could be replaced by a greater affection, a a greater affection, an affection for the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of God, to live our lives for that. I believe it can happen. I believe it can happen this morning, that we could have that kind of an experience even this morning. That's why I'm excited to dig into Isaiah chapter 6. Because I'm hoping that this morning's another morning where we could, all of us, be captivated by the glory of God. If you have your Bibles open, look at Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Let me pray for us before we dig into this word together. Lord God, I thank you so much for your for your holiness. But God, I think so often we, we kind of move so quickly past your glory, your holiness, your awesomeness, and, and God, we can so treat you flippantly. We can just pray like, like you're just a small thing, and, and yet, God, I pray that this morning, in a very real sense, we'd be reminded of your holiness. That at this very moment, if you entered into this place in your full glory, we would be done. God, that we would see that more clearly. God, that we'd be transformed by that today for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we dig into this, we have to understand that Isaiah, as he, as he has this experience, seeing the Lord as he did, whether it was a vision, whether, whether he was actually physically brought to, to that place, we don't know, but he'd already been a prophet for some time. Here's what I like about that. It's kind of cool to think that Isaiah had already been a prophet for a season. Because maybe you might be here uh, this morning and you're super new to church and you're kind of figuring this all out. Or maybe you're here and you're like, man, I've been in church my whole life. I love that it doesn't matter. You can have a fresh encounter with God this morning. I mean, Isaiah steps into this meeting with God, and I would assume that as a prophet, he probably thought he had God all figured out, and yet when he actually sees the reality of who God is, his life is changed forever. I mean, my prayer is that we could have that even this morning. You see, it starts out in verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. 
Now, if you want to find out about King Uzziah, you go to the, the, find out the history of who this guy was. In 2 Chronicles 26, you can read all about him. He was a phenomenal king. He was, if you were to ask the Israelites at that time, hey, tell me about King Uzziah, he's like in their top three kings of all time. All right, they just love this guy. He came in as a king as a 16-year-old, and then he reigned for 52 years. And in that time, everything in, in the nation was going awesome. He, he was a phenomenal king as far as military is concerned. So he, he was able to protect the people well. He, he, was, he was a brilliant king with innovation. So, so things grew, and economically, everything was going so great in the kingdom under Uzziah's reign. And then, then something happened. Uzziah, because things are going so great, like, like so often with us, you kind of start to have a bit of a swagger, right? Like, I am actually pretty awesome. And so he went into the temple, and, and, and God had rules set up, right? He, he had ways of, this is how I'm to be worshipped. And he had a, a law that he said, this is how you do it. And, and Uzziah stepped into the temple, and he wasn't supposed to, but he said, I'm also going to do what the priests do which went against what God had commanded. He goes, no, I'm going to do it. And there was all these priests and all these people saying, don't do it, Uzziah, don't do it. He goes, I'm going to make sacrifice. I'm going in to do what the, only the priests can do. In fact, in fact, there were 300 people trying to stop him from doing this. And, and, and he's like, no, I'm doing it. And he says, and if anybody stops me, you're going to die. I'm going to put you to death. And then in that moment when he did that, all of a sudden on his forehead, leprosy appeared. And then he, the, the rest of his days were him suffering from leprosy until he died. And so now we come into this. You can imagine what life in Israel was like right now. Uzziah had fallen from his throne. But look what Isaiah sees. God had not. Uzziah tried to exalt himself, but, but God was truly already exalted. People are in turmoil right here, thinking, man, our king is dead. Assyria is gaining in power. What's going to happen? The things are starting to, it's looking like they're going to invade. And Isaiah then sees the reality of who God is, that God is still on his throne, that God is still high and lifted up. In fact, you then see these, these incredible angelic beings, these seraphim, and, and what are they saying over and over again to each other? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. I'm not a super bright guy, but I, what are they trying to say about God? Oh, God is holy. Pretty clear, right? Our first point this morning is just that. God is holy. God is holy. Now, what does that mean, holy? What does holy mean? The, the, the literal meaning of the Hebrew word is to set apart. To say that you're different, you're not the same, you're distinct. And not just distinct, you're distinct and you're superior. So what are these angels saying? What's God trying to, trying to let us know here in his word that, listen, God is not like us. And we saw this last week, if you're here last week, that there's this huge gulf between who we are as the created beings and who God is. God is infinite. He's not just a little bigger, better version of you and me. He's not just a little bit smarter than we are, maybe a little bit stronger than we are. No, the Bible says that he's holy. He's completely set apart. I mean, God told Moses, you can't even look at me and live. That's his holiness. In Timothy, it says, Paul says to Timothy, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. This is the God who right now determines whether you get to take another breath. That's who God says he is. Here's the thing. So let me explain it this way. I am a five foot ten white dude from Muskoka, all right? 
I used to say five foot ten and a half because that half was very important to me. Not so much anymore. All right. So 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 that's who I am now. Now, if you were to say, no, actually, I think you're a, a seven hundred pound Kenyan man, and you're seven foot tall. And then someone else goes, no, I I I think that Pastor Kai's a a, a four foot tall Asian woman, right? And then, and then you kind of, you go out from here and you're in the parking lot having this argument. No, 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 I think he's Kenyan and he weighs 700 pounds. No, I think he's Asian and he's four feet tall and he's a woman and you're fine. And then someone steps in in the midst of all that and goes, guys, guys, listen, you're both right. As long as you believe it in your heart, right? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It, it doesn't make sense. And, and yet how often in our generation are we doing that with God? No, this is what I believe it is. It's okay if you believe that, as long as you believe it in your heart. And God says, no, no, let me tell you who I am. It doesn't matter what you and I believe. It matters what God says. We actually have the opportunity like Isaiah has here. We will have that opportunity, all of us, to stand before God. What will that be like? I mean, Jesus' best friend on earth was John, the apostle John. When John saw Jesus in all his glory in Revelation chapter one, his best friend, the guy who had hung out with him and and done ministry with him, but when he saw Jesus high and lifted up in his glory, John says, I fell down like I was dead. Isaiah, what's he say here when he sees God high and lifted up, when he hears holy, 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 when, when everything shakes, what's he say in verse five? Woe is me for I am lost. I'm undone. I'm ruined is what that word means. God's on his throne. Angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy. It's so important they're saying that three times, holy, holy, holy. If you and I want to emphasize words and we're writing an email, we can put it in bold. We can put it in all caps. We can underline it. In, in ancient Hebrew, they, they didn't have all that. They, they had a different way of, of making sure this is in the superlative, this is so important, and it was with repetition. You see it in Genesis 14. There's a story there of these people that fall into a pit, and it was this massive pit, and it actually literally says they fell into a pit pit. That's what it says. Right? If you fall into a pit, you're in trouble. You fall into a pit pit. Like, you're in big trouble, right? It's a way of saying this is a huge pit, And here are these angels are saying, God is not just holy. He's not even just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. So set apart. So so set apart in his awesomeness, high and lifted up. A temple now filling with smoke. His his train of his robe, it said it filled the whole place. I mean, think about it. When when a, a bride comes down, especially in royal weddings, and the train of their wedding dress goes down the whole aisleway, right? It's their splendor. It just looks so amazing. Now, now picture God, the king, on his throne. Because back in those days, the robe was a bit like that. The longer it was, it, it showed how, how great you were. And God on his throne and his robe filling this entire room, out into the foyer, up in stairs, all around this whole place. He is holy in splendor, but beyond comparison. Again, you see verse two, these, these two angels, these seraphim, it describes them here. It says, above him to the, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And they're calling out, holy, holy, holy. So I've said this a lot, but we've got to understand that, that angels are not these cute little chubby babies with bows and arrows, right? Because that's not going to freak you out. If you were to see this, though, these, these angels, these angels with, with, with the, these six wings, these awesome, and you'd be like, I don't know about you, but I don't even need to see God on the throne. I just see those and I'm undone, right? Those are created beings by God. 
these created beings who are created to dwell in his presence. And, and so they have, they have these six wings. Two wings they fly by. Why? So they can do what God calls them to. But, but two wings they cover their faces and two they cover their feet. Why? Because they can't look upon God's holiness. They can't look at his perfection and live. I mean, God is so holy that, that no sin, no impurity can be in his presence. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that impurity infects God. That's not what I'm talking about. We kind of talk that way, right? Oh, don't touch that. It's holy. You'll make it unholy. No, no, no. With God, his holiness is so great that sin is obliterated in his presence. It can't survive in his presence. Verse 4 goes on. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The thresholds, the pillars are shaking in God's presence. Now, I get it. I would be shaking. You and I would be shaking in God's holy presence. But even these inanimate objects are shaking. John Piper describes God's holiness of God, the holiness of God like this. He says, his holiness is what he is as God, which no one else will ever be. Call it his majesty, his divinity, his supreme greatness, his value as the pearl of great price. In the end, our language runs out. In the word holy, we've sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. That's God's holiness. Now think about it. You're in that room with God, the room described here. What are the first words that come out of your mouth? Imagine how, how terrified you'd be. If that's the picture of God, I mean, how would that impact how you prayed? How would that change how you would worship on a Sunday with that view of God? How would that change how you live throughout the week? I mean, to know God in this way, to know who he really is. I mean, I can be so flippant when I forget who God is. When I forget who I'm talking to in prayer, when I forget who I'm following, we're in the presence of a holy God. What do you say when you're there? What do you say when you're on your face in that throne room and you're looking up and there's these angels crying, holy, holy, holy? What's Isaiah say? Look at verse five. And I said, woe, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is holy. Here, here's what I want us to see. God's holiness is terrifying. God's holiness is terrifying. Anything you think, oh, I don't know. That, that's kind of an Old Testament version of God. He was, he was more angry back then. He got much nicer as things went on. I mean, I mean look at Jesus. And I'm thinking of myself and, and as a kid growing up in the church and seeing the pictures of Jesus in the Sunday school, right? He, he looked so nice. He had a white robe. He had the, the beauty queen blue sash on all the time. He had the flowing hair. He's carrying a lamb, right? So nice. 
course, then you see in Mark chapter 4, I love this story. It's one of my favorite accounts in, in Scripture where, where Jesus is asleep on a boat, and the boat then and eventually ends up in the middle of this hurricane where, where the disciples are freaked out. Even the fishermen are losing their minds. They're scared to death, terrified of this hurricane they're in. They wake up Jesus, and Jesus slowly kind of gets up, looks at this hurricane, and basically says, hey, knock it off. Everything goes quiet. You know, it, says, it says in the scriptures, it says that they were terrified of the hurricane. It says they were greatly terrified of Jesus. The rescue scared them. Scared, scared for their lives in the hurricane, but now that it's all calm and they see the holy power of the one who creates the hurricanes. And they were greatly terrified. Listen, that, that's God's holiness on display right there. God is not our homeboy. He, he's not the, the big guy upstairs. I mean, think about if God did answer our prayers in fullness. You know, we say, Lord, would you come down on this place? Would you, would you be here with us? Let your presence be here. If God ripped off the roof of this building and showed up, we would be obliterated, done for, outside of Christ. And Isaiah gets it. He, he, he sees God's holiness. He then looks at his life. And, 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 and think about it. Isaiah's the kind of guy that any one of us would say, that's an upstanding dude. That guy's got it going on. He's, he's following God so greatly. He was a prophet, a good guy. And then he sees God's holiness and he goes, woe is me. I mean, this is a prophet who, just look over at chapter five, just on the other side of the page or flip back to, go to verse eight of chapter five. Here's some things that Isaiah was saying as a prophet. And, and God was leading him to say these things. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no room. He's basically saying, hey, woe to you who just keep going on building more and more while poor people are, are dying. That's, that's what he's talking about. Woe. Woe to you. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Apparently bars opened up earlier back in the day, all right? We're saying, woe to you. Verse 18. Woe to those who, who draw iniquity with, with cords of falsehood. Those who are lying all the time. Woe to you. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in those. You're so prideful. Woe to you. Verse 22, he swings back at the guys in the bar again. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Woe to you. Over and over again, woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. He gets a vision of God and he goes, woe is me. It was a couple years ago when, when we were having our, our youth kickoff and, and we were playing that game bump, you know, where you like shoot the basketball and you got to run to the back of the line. And, and I was playing against the junior highs and I, I don't mean to brag or anything, but I won, all right? Um, I did, I did. I destroyed them. And um, now here's the thing. It, it is it's pretty easy to, to kind of go, hey, look at how amazing I am at basketball when you're, when you're an adult playing junior highs, right? Now, now what happens if, if, if you then take me, who thinks I'm the greatest basketball player in the world, and go, hey, let's just drop you on the court with the Raptors. Let's see how you do. Let's see how you play then. We can think we're pretty amazing and, and looking horizontally at everybody else going, woe to them, woe to them. Look at them. What a train wreck. Look at those people. And then we look vertically and we see God high and lifted up in his holiness. And Isaiah goes, I'm undone. I'm a wreck. I'm ruined. I'm torn apart. Why is God's holiness so terrifying? 
Because it shows us the reality of who we actually are. That, that even our goodness isn't that good. What's he say in verse five? He says, woe to me. Woe to me for I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm, I'm, I'm undone. He says, I feel like I'm coming apart. Then what's he say? He says, my lips are unclean. Now here's the thing about saying that. Isaiah was a prophet. His lips were the thing that, that, that were really great about him. I, Isaiah was the one who could talk so well, who could preach so well. It, it would be like this, if you were a surgeon in the same situation, you'd go, woe to me, my hands are so unclean. If you're an all-star pitcher, you would say, woe to me, my arm is so unclean. It's taking the greatest thing about him and saying, man, this is nothing. This, this thing that defined Isaiah I would say this way, it's, it's the glue that held Isaiah together. He gets in the presence of God and that glue is disintegrated. He comes undone. His standard for I'm okay as long as I have this is now gone. That thing that he would normally hold up and go, if this is going all right in my life, then I should be doing okay. My identity is, is secure, who I am, my purpose. And now he says, it's filthy. It's unclean. Isaiah, history tells us that Isaiah would have been an elite. He was actually related to the royal family. He, he was brilliant. I mean, think about it. If people were still 3,000 years after you wrote a book, were still reading it and studying it and talking about it, that, that, you're kind of brilliant to be able to pull that off, right? Smart guy. He comes in the presence of God and he's undone. He says, even the best part of me is unclean. Even the best part of me is flawed. Even the best part of me is selfish and distorted and twisted. You, know, you, see, you, see, you, you see that when you, when you look through scripture, every time someone moves from just having a concept of who God is and then they actually meet God, every time in scripture, they're completely undone by it. Isaiah says, I'm unclean. My, my lips are unclean. A man of unclean lips. That, that, that word he uses, unclean, is a very specific word that he would have chosen. It's, it's actually a word that lepers would call out to people as they were walking to make sure you'd stay away from them. They would go walk around, unclean, unclean. Uzziah, when he got struck with leprosy and he was leaving the temple, his first words coming out of there would have been unclean. And that's the word Isaiah chose. I mean, think about it, that God's holiness doesn't just blow up our, our weakness and our brokenness and our sin. It obliterates our strengths by showing us, man, your strengths aren't that strong. What we put our hope in and our identity in horizontally, we come face to face with God's holiness. This is why it's terrifying, because we lose it all. We come undone. The, that, that glue we think is holding our lives together, it's now gone. For, for Isaiah, it was his speaking. It was what he did as a job. He was, I'm a prophet. You see the apostle Paul, the same thing happens where he said, man, I was going about my life and I was the top of my game, the smartest, the culturally, I'm, I'm at the top of the ladder. And then he says, I met Jesus. And he goes, I was undone. He says, all that stuff I put my hope in. He says in Philippians, he says, it's dung, it's trash, it's garbage. Let me ask you, what's your glue? Everybody has some. Everybody has a glue. We say, if, if I've got this, I'm okay. What is it for you? What gives you a hope for your future? Amen. Amen. 
what competes for that? Maybe, maybe what's competing, maybe it's, maybe it's finances, maybe it's your physical ability, maybe it's your business abilities, maybe it's your family, maybe it's, it's your moral goodness, maybe it's your control of things. What strength do you need to lay down in the presence of a holy God? It's so much easier to do our weaknesses, isn't it? It's so much easier to come before God and go, here's my sin, here's my brokenness, and we can see that so clearly. And, and listen, that is a step in maturity when you start to see that, but a deeper step of a, of a deeper walk with the Lord is when you then start to say, wait a minute, even these good things I need to repent of, even these good things I need to bring to the Lord, these, these things that I self-justify with, these things that I self-atone with, When you see people, when you see yourself starting to go, I want to give that to the Lord, you've been in the presence of a holy God. I mean, Isaiah sees the glory and the holiness of God. He sees these angels created and designed to, to display and declare the glory of God. And Isaiah, in a fresh way, I think realizes, this is why I was created. I, I was created by a holy God to use my life to proclaim, to display the praise of the glory of God. And he realizes, man, how short I come in that. Now, the presence of God, the, the only thing that could happen at this moment as he's standing before God, the only thing that Isaiah knows that could happen is that he would be obliterated by God's holiness. Now, so far, this is a pretty bad news sermon, right? Like, this is great, Kai. Thanks for the encouragement. Look at verse six and seven, though. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here's the last thing we see about God's holiness. God's holiness is transforming. When Isaiah sees the angel coming towards him with this coal from the altar, it has the, the fire of God in his hand. Do you, you know what Isaiah would have thought? If he was a, I mean, a prophet of the Old Testament, he would have known how God operates. Every single place in the Old Testament where you see the fire of God, it always represents judgment. It represents God's wrath. It's, it's not this, oh, it cleanses him. That's, that's not what he's expecting as it's coming towards him. God's fire did not cleanse. God's fire consumed. And so here's Isaiah, who just finally realized the extent of God's holiness. He sees his sin. And as he sees his sin, he, he does what we would call repent. He goes, God, I, this is who I am. This is who I actually am. Right away, the fire of God comes near. He must have thought, I'm done for. I'm over. It's the fire of God. An angel even had to use tongs to get it out from under the altar. But when it gets to his mouth, the place where Isaiah said, this is where there's filth. This is where I'm unclean. Instead of consuming him, it cleansed him. Why is that? Because I believe this, the fire of God's wrath had already been burned out. That coal was a spent coal. It came from the altar where the sacrifice had already been made. I mean, verse 7 says, your sin's been atoned for. Your guilt has been removed, taken away. So yes, God's holiness is terrifying, but it's also transforming. And for us on this side of the cross, that we would know that, that centuries later, almost the exact same thing happens. The temple again would be shaken. An earthquake again would happen because God's presence was coming down. And on the cross, when Christ died, it says in, in, the, in the gospel accounts that, that when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there was an earthquake at that moment. 
The temple was so shaken, the pillars, the foundations of the temple so shaken, the threshold shaken, that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence was and it separated that from everybody else, that veil tore in two. Why did all this happen? Remember the night before when Jesus was praying in the garden and he was saying that his soul was sorrowful even unto death? That's Jesus saying like Isaiah, I'm undone. He's saying, woe is me, I, I, I'm ruined, I'm coming apart. But, but, but no angel showed up to say to Jesus in that moment, your sin is atoned for. Why? Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice on that altar where the coal for Isaiah had come. That, that, that Jesus was shaken right to the depth so that you and I could be unshakable. So that sin could be atoned for so that we could stand firm on the grace of God, no, no longer under the weight of our sin, no longer under the weight of trying to measure up and hoping if I grab these things, I'll be okay. No, now knowing that in, in, in the presence of a holy God, that through Christ, you've been completely accepted, not because of your performance. We don't serve God to get things. We already have everything in him. So what do you do? Now, now you just give your life. Why? Because you've met grace. Now you have a tremendous capacity to do radical things, to live a radically different life because you've been provoked by something so great. I mean, don't lose the amazing of amazing grace. God is so holy in perfection that sin cannot survive in his presence. And he's so holy in his love that he offers himself up in our place as a sacrifice so we can thrive in his presence forever. God is so, so holy in righteousness that, that we have to die for our sin, but he's so holy in love and grace that he was glad to die in our place. That's what it means for God to be holy. And when Isaiah sees this whole reality for the first time, and listen, he was already a prophet. He, he knew about God, but here he's walking away saying, man, I used to talk about God. I used to know things about him, but now I know him. And what's his response to this amazing grace? Look at verse eight. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. I would say this, it is impossible to have a genuine experience with, with the holiness of God and the grace of God to experience that. It's impossible to have that happen and not become an evangelist for that grace, not become someone who, who just can't stop talking about the grace of God. When you've truly experienced it, Isaiah is transformed. He says, man, send me, I'll be the one to go. And here's the crazy part. Look at the assignment God gives him though. Verse nine, and he said, go and say to this people, keep Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and land in a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And, through a tenth, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled, but the holy seed is, a, <clears throat> is its stump. Here's what God's saying, all that. He's saying, hey, Isaiah, here's your, here's your mission. It's gonna be horrible. 
You're going to talk to people who don't want to listen to you, and your whole life, you won't see the fruit of this. There'll be a stump left behind that will be the fruit of that, that, that Christ is coming. So, so think about what Isaiah's mission was. Nobody ever came up to Isaiah and said, love that sermon, Isaiah, right? Nobody hugged him. Nobody said thanks to him. Nobody talked about how amazing God was using him. He had a brutally hard ministry. Nobody listened to him. In fact, in fact, history tells us that Isaiah's life ended because a, a king put him inside a log and then sawed him in half. Now, how could Isaiah do all of this? Because he'd experienced the grace and the holiness of God. The same Jesus who, who, who calls you to follow him with this, this mission of grace to the world. The same Jesus, he's the one who holds the whole universe together. That's how Isaiah could say, I can do this. I can go here. I mean, I've heard it said this way. If, if you were to take the distance between the sun and the earth and make it the, the width of, the distance just the width of a piece of paper, the, the distance from, from our earth to the nearest star would be, would be 70 feet high of paper. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's our galaxy, but our galaxy is a speck of dust in, 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 in the universe, and, and, and Jesus holds all of that together with a word of his power. So when Jesus steps in and says, hey, I have a mission for you, we can say, here am I, send me. But Isaiah, your mission was so hard. He's like, are you kidding me? That's okay. God's with me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. He, he'll supply my every need. He, he waits for me at the end of this journey, and he'll say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Isaiah is basically saying, if this God, this holy God who I saw, if this God's for me, who can be against me? My guess is this, that there are maybe many of you here this morning and, and you feel more like Israel at the time that Uzziah died. Discouraged, maybe fearful, maybe wandering. Maybe the foundations of your life have, have been shake, shaken recently. Maybe it's illness or, or illness in your family. Maybe it's, it's job security. Maybe it's a relationship that's, that's struggled or struggling. Maybe it's just worry and fear about what, what the future holds. And, and you're asking, is, is it going to be okay? Is it going to fall apart? Am I going to be okay? Listen, I would say this. See this again. Maybe see this for the first time. The Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. See it again, the Lord lifted up high, seated on his throne. So, so where others might fail you, maybe, maybe it's a relationship that's failed you, a, a parent or, or a leader or a friend or a spouse, God never will. Where others might fall from their thrones, God never will fall from his. God made a promise, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He is the foundation that you can build your life on that will never be shaken, even in the midst of trial. So this morning, again, see that the Lord is on his throne. The throne is not empty. My question is this, do you know this God? Have you seen what Isaiah saw? Have you ever got to that point where you said, woe is me, I'm undone. I don't, get to, I don't deserve to live in the presence of a holy God. Not just, oh yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm a good person still. I'm trying to get better. 
I mean, have you ever seen God as holy? Where you see, I deserve punishment, and, and it's only because of the ultimate sacrifice that, that the fire of wrath, the fire of the wrath of God came down on Jesus instead of me. That because of that, that my ultimate debt being paid, that I now have hope. I have an unshakable hope. Have you ever said, woe is me? Have you ever felt the, the, the white hot coal of, of God's holiness on your life? And then seen the grace of God. So amazing. Where Jesus says to you, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So you can say, Lord, it doesn't matter what's, what's, what's happening out there. Lord, you send me. In fact, this morning, why don't you stand with me before we worship? As you stand, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you, as you're, as you're staying there with, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I want you to imagine the scene that Isaiah saw. I want you to imagine the throne high and lifted up, the, the train of, of God's robe filling the temple, that it's, it's smoke and, and darkness and shaking and trembling and, and the, these unbelievable creatures, these angels with six wings crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy. And God looks at you. What are the words that are coming out of your mouth? Maybe right now in this moment, maybe, maybe with that, that picture, take your request to the Lord. Take your prayer to the Lord. Whatever those words that you say, if, if this is where I am, this is what I'm saying. Take some time right now in the quiet of your heart to bring your heart to the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Lord God, I pray that in this moment that there'd be an Isaiah 6 moment happening right now. Father, I pray that this week as we go about our week, Lord, that we would have Isaiah 6 moments throughout our week. God, so that, that you become our ultimate treasure. That your holiness and your grace is what, what fills our hearts and our minds. That that's what becomes the foundation that our lives are built on. A foundation that will never be shaken. All for your glory, God. I pray this in Jesus' name.